Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us here at the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ here at GodsRedeemed.org. We're thankful that you are taking the time to be interested in spiritual things, that you're concerned about the Bible, and that you want to be a student of God's Word, and that you want to learn more about God and His Word and about His Son, who we're talking about today. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22, and we're going to read a couple of verses there in just a moment. Luke chapter 22. We're going to spend almost all of our time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this, this afternoon, because we're talking about what happened in the place called Gethsemane. And the title of our study today is simply, In Gethsemane with Jesus, Lessons Learned from Our Savior's Life, from His Sacrifice, and from His Example. I'm confident that you are familiar with what happened in Gethsemane. Jesus prayed there. Jesus cried there. Jesus was sweating as drops of blood as recorded by Luke. And then Jesus was arrested there by a mob that was sent to bring him in so that he would be crucified. And of course, this was all a part of God's plan in order for us to have salvation that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ himself. I want to read Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47. And I want you to pretend that this is the first time you've ever read this passage, because I'm confident you've read it before. But if you would, envision reading this for the first time and how it impacts you. While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness." Again, you're familiar with what happened there in Gethsemane, but every time you read it, you kind of maybe privately or wishingly hope that something would be different this time. Except when you stop and think about it, as we said just a moment or so ago, this is a part of God's plan, where indeed Judas would betray Jesus, Jesus would go to the cross, and Jesus would die for the sins of humanity. There is so much that is learned out of those few verses, and I want us to consider three or four things this afternoon. The first thing that I want us to consider, or that jumps out of these pages, or if I was reading this for the first time, is that there is great confidence in God the Father. Jesus has great confidence in his Father and in his plan and in his providence 
and the same should be true for us. The fact is, is from the perspective of Jesus, this garden experience could be indeed a frightening one. Look over in John chapter 18 at a parallel text and read with me a couple of verses at the outset of John chapter 18 where John records that Jesus, when he had spoken these words, went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And then Jesus, who was knowing what was going on, calmly approached Judas with one question. Look at the confidence that Jesus had in his Father's plan. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said, Whom are you seeking? How calm and resolute Jesus was because of the confidence that he had. And when the mob said that Jesus was their target, in verse 5, he still remained calm and he still remained confident. Jesus said in verse 5, I am he. Now when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked again in verse 7, Whom are you seeking? Again, they responded, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says very calmly and confidently in verse 8, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, so that the saying might be fulfilled, which spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. While everyone was forsaking Jesus, and we know in Matthew chapter 26, that everyone would forsake Jesus, he stood confident. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in the sandals of Jesus on that day 2,000 years ago? And there you are with your life about to be changed forever and for the world to be changed as a result of your actions, for all of your friends to forsake you and flee, and you are left there by yourself. How lonely that must have been for Jesus, yet he remained confident in the Father. Jesus' confidence was not arrogance. Let's be careful. Jesus was never arrogant, but rather he was confident in three things. One, he had knowledge of his purpose. Jesus knew what his purpose was. In Matthew chapter 26, in verse 2, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This was before the betrayal of Judas, or by Judas to Jesus. This was before the garden scene that would appear later in the chapter. He was aware of his purpose. Secondly, he was in submission to his Father's ultimate power. In John chapter 19, when we get closer to the cross, Jesus actually said regarding power in John chapter 19 and verse 11, he says, you, speaking to Pilate, the governor, 
You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus knew his purpose. Jesus was in submission to the Father's ultimate power. And thirdly, Jesus was aware of the temporal, of the temporary nature of his death and its effect on humanity. I'm reminded of great passages like Matthew 16. Remember when Peter confessed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus there was saying a number of different things, but one of the things that Jesus is saying is that his death would not be permanent, that he would not go to the grave and remain there for all time, but rather he would be there for a period of three short days, and then he would rise again, and that new life would provide opportunity for others. This confidence that Jesus had in his Father and in his Father's plan should be modeled in our own lives as well, in that we need to be confident as well. Never arrogant, never pompous, but confident. Hebrews chapter 4 says that we are to come boldly to God's throne with confidence that he will answer our prayers. And the Bible is replete with passages of great men and women who were confident in the Lord's service. So when we go to Gethsemane and we see what happened, the first thing that we see is that Jesus had confidence and we should have confidence as well. Secondly, when we go to Gethsemane, one of the things that we see is that we are going to be targeted by many. Because of our closeness to Jesus, because of, because of our affinity with Jesus, and because of our relationship with the Savior, we are going to get caught up into trouble. There were more than a few who came after Jesus in the garden. Go, if you would, to Mark chapters 14 and Mark chapter 13. And I want to read in Mark chapter 14 and verse 43. Notice the terminology that is used by Mark in verse 43 of chapter 14. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, and then my Bible says, with a great multitude came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. A great multitude came after Jesus. There will be a great multitude that will seek to destroy you and to destroy me as servants of the Lord. Making the decision to serve God is the easiest way for us to paint a giant target on our back. I have said many times that if you want to go through this life swimmingly, if you want to not have problems in this life, if you want to make it so that you have lots of friends and that you have lots of fame and that you have lots of fortune in this life, that perhaps you ought not be a Christian because becoming a Christian means you're going to lose friends. It means that you're going to lose fame. It means that you will probably lose your fortune. In fact, the people in biblical times were living in common with one another, sacrificing for each other, including but not limited to their own fortunes. Well, in Mark chapter 13, just a page back or two in your Bibles, in Mark chapter 13 and verse 13, 
Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my namesake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So Jesus is not sugarcoating his message. He doesn't say, well, it's possible that somebody may not like you at some particular point. He says, you are going to be hated. And to those of you who are watching who are Christians, you know what I mean. You've lost friends. You've had family situations that have been tainted as a result of your faith. You may have very well lost out on a contract because you did not engage in the physical pleasures of this life. Or maybe you didn't get the promotion because someone else who was cozying up to the boss at the bar was able to secure that job advancement. Making a decision to serve God is a great decision, but it is one that comes with cost as outlined here in Mark chapter 13. Godly men and godly women have always stirred up others in the cause of Christ. Remember what happened at Jason's house in Acts chapter 17? You have literally, well not literally, but figuratively the world being turned upside down. The terminology that is used on that particular occasion. But the fact is, is we are going to be targets of many because we're turning the world upside down. And godly men and women, even though they have always stirred up trouble, at least in the eyes of the government, or the eyes of our friends, or of those in the world who are carnally minded, godly men and women have always been protected by God. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in the old days of Daniel. They were cast into that fire by the wicked king himself. And he heated up that fire. And he wanted to destroy those men because of their refusal to obey him and bow to him as God. God protected those men. And they even recognized that if they perished in the fire, they would rather perish in the fire serving God than live disobeying their Creator. But we are going to be targeted by many. And you need to understand, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, that while that's the best decision you'll ever make, it does come with a cost that you should count. That's another thing that we see at Gethsemane. A third thing that we see at Gethsemane is that forgiveness is at the heart of God and that forgiveness is always a must. Forgiving or showing love is an easy thing to do when you're dealing with friends. Jesus acknowledged so much in Matthew chapter 5 verses 44 and following where Jesus says, if you lay down your life for your friends, that's great. If you love your friends and you are nice to your friends, that's wonderful. But the true test of character for a Christian comes when we deal with our enemies, when we deal with people that spit on us, when we deal with people that are ridiculing us, when we deal with people who are gossiping about us. Jesus was more than willing to practice what he preached. We hear that sometimes. You need to practice what you preach. Don't be hypocritical. Well, turn over to Luke chapter 22, this time to verse 47, where we were reading from a few moments ago. We're not going to reread that text, but I want to go down to verse 51, where Jesus calmly, again with confidence, says, Permit even this, and he touched the ear of Malchus, and he healed him. 
You see, Jesus had preached about forgiveness. Jesus was modeling the character of God who, according to Psalm 86, is, quote, ready to forgive. And we have to model ourselves after God and after Jesus as well in being willing to forgive because forgiveness is at the heart of God and forgiveness is always a must. Even when we are frustrated, forgiveness is a must. I want to look at a passage back in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. And I want to go back to verse 1 to get the context here before we move on to our fourth and final observation from Gethsemane. But Jesus says in Luke 17, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And then notice verses 3 and 4. And Jesus is speaking to these earliest disciples, but he's also speaking to those of us who 2,000 years later have pledged to be his disciples. Take heed to yourselves, Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, of course, you remember where Peter would speak up on another occasion and say, how many times shall we forgive? Up to seven times? And Jesus, of course, famously says, not seven, but 70 times seven. The idea is, is you forgive as a human being in the way that God forgives. And again, I point you back to Psalm 86, verse 5, that I quoted from just a moment or so. But it's one of my favorite verses in the Psalms because it describes God as being ready to forgive. It's not that he's reluctant to forgive. It's not that he will drag his feet to forgive, but God is ready to forgive. And that character was seen in Gethsemane with what Jesus did on that occasion. Well, a fourth and a final thing that we learn at Gethsemane is that patience is a sign of strength. Patience is a sign of strength. You know, sometimes when we think about tough men or strong women, we don't associate that with patience. We sometimes associate it with a gruff, uh, quick-to-action individual lacking patience. But Jesus was patient. As we've already said, he's confident and calm in the Father. Jesus was without a doubt, the toughest man ever. But yet he was the most patient man ever. And sometimes we use that term, tough as nails. Jesus was so tough that he was willing to have those nails put through his feet and put through his hands. Jesus was a tough, strong man. But that strength was not shown in typical ways. Jesus' strength and his toughness and his tenacity allowed him to react to the difficult events with a marked calmness. Turn over, if you would, to Mark chapter 14, where we were reading from just a few moments ago. But in Mark chapter 14, I want to read three or four verses. In Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 46. 
they laid their hands on him and they took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said, Then have you come out to me against a robber or as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Look at that calm, resolute, patient picture of our Savior. And even in the midst of a tough time, Jesus remained patient. Again, put yourself in the sandals of Jesus. How would you react on an occasion like this? I'm not real fond of the way that I would answer that question. Because I understand that I may not be as patient. I may not be as kind as Jesus. Jesus' strength and that tenacity and patience was shown and how he gave others the benefit of the doubt. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. This is one of my favorite passages in the story of what happened at Gethsemane. But in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47, in Matthew's account, I want you to notice a particular word that is used. While he was speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with sword and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. We look at that and, and our hearts are torn to see the betrayal of Jesus, especially with a kiss. But then notice verse 50, and if you like underlining things in your Bible, what is the first word out of the mouth of Jesus? Jesus said to him, quote, friend. Friend. You are the one who's going to betray me. It is at your hands and because of you that I'm going to be turned over to the authorities. And the first word that Jesus used was friend. There's something powerful about that that we can learn. He was patient. And even in patience, gave others the benefit of the doubt. Rather than a violent reaction or swinging his fists or trying to flee or calling up Peter and the, and the comrades around Peter and saying, let's fight and let's escape, Jesus calmly and with patience asked these men why are you here? Who are you after? What is it that you need? And he proved that he was the strongest, most patient man who ever lived. Jesus is the model for us to follow. And it's true that we learn that from the teachings of Jesus and the parables and the miracles. But even in Jesus' darkest moments, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we learn so much about this great man. Jesus' example in Gethsemane should be a great learning experience for us all. For the fact is, is when we go to Gethsemane with Jesus, and we go to that garden, we learn that we must trust our Father like Jesus had confidence. We learn that we will be targeted, and that's okay, because with God on our side, we will be held. 
We see in Gethsemane the challenge to forgive others in spite of how they have treated us. And we see in Gethsemane the need to be patient. There's probably a message for everyone watching and certainly a message for he who speaks today in Gethsemane. Because all of us can be more confident, all of us can be more resolute, all of us can be more forgiving, and all of us can be more patient. And I hope that these words can be helpful to you as you think about living your life more righteously in service to our God. If we can help you at the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ to be more patient, more confident, more resolute, and more forgiving, we would love that opportunity to help you and to encourage you in any way that we can. We are ready to baptize you if you're not a Christian and you're ready to be baptized having repented of your sins as is taught in Acts 2 and verse 38. If we can help you, let us know. If we can pray for you, contact us. And thank you so much for your time this afternoon.